Hello, and welcome to our latest episode of Adventures in Auditing. Today we have uh, two special guests joining us because we're going to talk about an audit of countywide deferred revenue. I'm Richard Yossi, Chief Deputy. I'm Chris Harding, the County Auditor. I'm Audra Bylan, Audit Manager. I'm Sydney Grigg, Internal Auditor. And then uh, we had another auditor on this team, Pete, who uh, unfortunately is ill today, so he wasn't able to join us. So um, These are our first repeat guests. Yes. Long-time listeners and second-time participants. Um, so before we dive into the deferred revenue specifically, we wanted to take a minute and talk a little bit. And we've talked about this sort of our audit process, but... I think um, it's important on this audit with some of the things that uh, are in some of the management responses. Um, so if Sydney and Audra, we're going to kind of tag team you guys on these questions. Tell us a little bit about the initial process, the procedure, the walkthroughs, who are you asking questions to? Maybe we'll start with Sydney, who's kind of on the ground and was in a lot of these walkthroughs. Um. I attended the on-site testings that we did. And so I think it was um, Audra that did the initial contact. And she helped identify the specific people that were over the processes that we'd be working with. And so um, after we do that initial contact, if you need some documentation that's available on-site, then that's when you do on-site testing. And you work with those key people and they show you specific documentations or in signatures, um, permits, and other stif- stuff like that that helps us ensure that the controls are functioning and what controls are present. Did we did talk about, I'm sure our listeners are probably wondering, what is a, a deferred revenue? One of you wonderful guests, tell us what that is. So deferred revenue is any is unearned revenue. So typically what happens would be, let's say you make a payment for a membership or you go into a contract and you pay up front, then the other party, it's their responsibility to provide those goods and services and complete it, that the other party wouldn't be able to recognize that revenue until they've um, completed that good or service. So either... Um, if it's a monthly, if it's a year-long subscription or membership, each month they could recognize revenue. Um, contrast, if it was a um, specific type of contract where you pay up front, then it's not like a construction project, say. Um, they wouldn't necessarily be able to recognize it until it's been completed. So it could take a few months, it could take a few years. Um, but you can't, you just can't recognize it right away. Okay. Yeah, that helped shed a little bit more light on our subject. So as we're in auditing these divisions, like arts and culture, um, there were a couple of parks and rec, the surveyor's office, we're not experts in all of those fields. So we rely on those walkthroughs, those interviews with the the oddity where they basically tell us, they they teach us, this is how we do our process. This, and then we ask for, in this case, some of the documentation. We look for forms, signatures. Right. We're, we're basically, I always think of it as give me training in two hours. So you need to ask a lot of questions, a lot of clarifications, gather a lot of documentation and understanding of what their procedures are, 
what they have in place, what they're, maybe if they don't have a written policy, what is their best practice or what do they commonly do? Um, you have to, and you want to have that discussion with the primary individuals that are overseeing that process um, to make sure you have a good understanding of it. Yeah, so one of the things we, we do in the audit process is uh, with our current audits, we're doing what we call an agreement to the facts at the end of the audit uh, versus an exit conference. And agreement to the facts is, is just that. we, As we go throughout the audit, um, as we have findings or like if, our, if the department tells our auditors, hey, we do these five steps and then they go out and do some testing and say, oh, and these applications or whatnot or these permits we didn't see a step three being done all the time is did we miss something and they might say oh yeah we messed up there oh hey for these things we actually only do steps one two and four and five and that's why step three is missing so the agreement to the facts it's it's towards the end of the audit uh, but it just allows us to have given the draft to the different departments they read through it if they have any questions or uh, they feel like, oh, maybe the team, the audit team just misunderstood what I said or whatnot, we can have that meeting to kind of talk about that. If they have any questions or concerns, um, they can address them. And even even past that meeting, um, if, if they're not comfortable talking with our audit team in that meeting, uh, they can call them up on a one-on-one -on -one basis and, and resolve any of those concerns because we want – uh, the audit when it when it gets issued that it's not a surprise to anybody the departments or our auditors uh, and and that works a lot better than say like an exit conference where you just say hey this is our report and it's going out like that uh, it really helps to kind of close that loop and help us answer any questions and clarify anything we need to with the auditee so maybe we should jump into um, the actual audit. Um, so in this audit, there were seven findings. And, and we, uh, we did look at a variety of areas of the county, some of the library, arts and culture, aging adult services, Clark Planetarium, surveyor, um, and a couple, I think I said Parks and Rec, but a couple of their locations. Um, but overall, no evidence of fraud, waste, and abuse. Nope. And no evidence of any sort of malfeasance as we we did this audit. This is basically, um, someone described it to me the other day as a speeding ticket. Yeah, we probably should should have done this a little bit better or shouldn't have done this, but we pretty easy to rectify and and fix. So, Well, if we're going along with that narrative, you could also say it's like when you take your car in to get the uh, uh, safety and emissions done. Maybe it's not so much a speeding ticket, but just a, hey, we noticed your windshield wipers are out of date, and that can propose a up, you know, cause a risk if it rains outside. It, these folks aren't necessarily, as we mentioned earlier, doing anything nefarious. It's just there's always room for improvement. I think you're uh, aging yourself or aging the the age of your cars because most <laughs> people don't have to, have to have safety inspections anymore. But I remember those days. Oh yeah. <laughs> so okay, so uh, finding one was. Um, a lack of breakage policy for unclaimed funds. So maybe Sydney, tell us a little bit about what is a breakage policy and or why, why it's needed and Audra, if you'd expand on, on that. Yeah, so I think the, base, the basics of that is to just 
make sure that after a specific time that you're able to recognize that revenue just so it doesn't sit there for an unknown amount of time and you can't do anything with it. And then it just gets more complicated to manage as the years go on. You can expound that if there's anything else. No, I think that that does do a good good job addressing it. I, I think the the basically essentially the largest finding, most significant one to bring to the attention for the county is we should have a breakage policy in place, especially for gift certificates, gift cards, anything where it poses a risk of potentially sitting on the books um, and as a liability, but then it's just not being recognized, not being used, not having any controls in place to either make sure they are that patrons are actually going to attend and uh, reimburse their gift certificate um, or after a certain number of years that they are, the agency is just able to recognize it. Um, otherwise, it will be sitting there, and it, it can increase the risk of fraud, waste, and abuse um, as these balances start to accrue. So let me put this in terms my fellow foodies can understand. Like if I go and get a gift card from Cafe Rio and I give it to Richard, that's a deferred revenue. Cafe Rio shouldn't necessarily recognize it until Richard takes that gift card over there to use it. But if Richard takes it home and it gets lost behind the washing machine and two years down the road he still hasn't used it, at some point Cafe Rio's going to want to determine, hey, the chance, the likelihood that this gift card's going to be redeemed is low, so we should recognize it as revenue and get it off our, our books. Um, and that's kind of what we're doing here in the county is, is making sure, I mean, some of these balances, they got up to uh, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so. But as a consumer, I do love it when I get that Cafe Rio gift card and it doesn't ever expire. Sure. So, I mean, uh, an acceptable amount of time, and that's probably a, a decision for the here at the county for the council to make. Yeah, the council in conjunction with our smart attorneys, as always. So, um, on gift cards, that segues to our finding two, which was just inadequate monthly reconciliations of, of gift card balances. And um, Chris and I were talking about this earlier today that um, we see one area where this is important is um, if you're making a mistake earlier in the year um, and then you continue to make that same accounting mistake every month, you know, it, it can add up. And if you do it monthly, the chances of that repeat mistake happening all year or, or a little bit less. So anything else you, you would add on, I, on this finding? I think the only thing would be it also helps agencies have a good idea of just what their outstanding balance is, which ties it back to that original finding of, hey, we're accruing these balances. Every month when we reconcile it, they're not redeeming this number. And so those two can kind of be paired up together um, and complement each other. Uh, and every agency, you know, they may have their own method of reconciliations, but there's a general practice that they should be following to help make sure that they are staying up to date and current um, and are aware of what their current balances are. Okay, so um, finding three, we had uh, an inadequate retention or incomplete annual pass membership, venue and party rental or party room rental and um, his ex existing monument permit applications. So 
Um, the annual pass memberships, either couldn't find them or they were incomplete. Maybe one of you want to tell us a little bit about the rental, the room rentals. We kind of lumped them into just a couple because there was some overlap. And then um, the monument permit applications at the surveyor's office. If you, any one of you want to expand on that. So a lot of the memberships, a lot of this is just ties back to establishing that initial contract. So if we are um, going in there and taking a look, making sure that revenue is being recognized appropriately, a lot of these applications are establishing that, that legal requirement, the presence of a contract, things like that. Um, you want to make sure that you have all those signatures present by the parties that are, are necessary. And this can also tie into not having redundancies within the contracts. Um, and so a lot of the annual passes, um, memberships were to various parks and recs facilities where, you know, they're processing a lot of memberships. Um, they have a lot of patrons that they're servicing, so they just want to make sure they have those on record uh, to tie it to to make sure to help support their revenue and what they're recognizing. Um, Cindy, do you want to touch on the monument permits? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the monument permits were completed by permit holders who were filing to do construction in the county. So basically they have to get permission to work around specific monuments. And we reviewed those permits and the applications on site. And then after, if we have questions, um, then we would reach out for clarifications. And that's kind of when we noticed that there were some permit applications that, you know, were missing signatures. And having those is really important because you want to be able to verify that both parties agreed to the terms and conditions. And that also if anything were to happen in the future and someone were to come back and say, I didn't agree to this, or um, they had questions, that it would show that they agreed to the initial conditions and that you know the county wouldn't be liable or that they wouldn't lose money because we couldn't support that it was complete. Yeah, it's important to... I mean, folks are always saying stuff like like these signatures. Is that really something that we need to be concerned about? Well, yeah, the, if they're not doing the simple things like signing the application form or essentially signing the contract, it, it seems small, but it's, it's important. Um, that's a good segue into findings four and five as well. Uh, four, uh, we just noticed that there were a lot of, uh, and mostly due to, COVID, I think, but a lot of memberships. Um, I'm sure you folks experienced some of this where maybe you have a rec center membership that during COVID, you weren't able to go to the rec center and take advantage of that membership. So they, they would, in a lot of cases, uh, extend when they were going to expire. But uh, as we got out there and audited, we noticed that some of these en entities just that the memberships just didn't have an expiration. I think one of them had it was like 600 days from the, the time it had been initially set up. Um, and then uh, finding five, this is another, it seems simple, but having written policies and procedures down, um, folks might think of this and say, wow, is that really a finding? They didn't have anything written down. But think about it. How much, how do you hold somebody accountable for a, for a process 
whether it's setting up new memberships, issuing a permit, if, if it's a very involved process and you don't have like a guidebook or a checklist or a desk reference, something written down to where your employees can uh, constantly review and, and remind themselves, refresh themselves on what it is they're supposed to do. These are small but important things. And in that finding, uh, finding five, so aging adult services was in the process of writing uh, policies and procedures while we were doing the audit, and they, um, in their response, said they should have all that fit, finished by uh, the end of this calendar year. Um, so in the surveyor's office, it kind of there were three issues with this. They had permits that didn't have any images or documentation showing if a monument was or wasn't disturbed. Um, the time period lapsed between the evidence um, and a notification letter being sent to the permit holder. And on those two, that's where these policies and procedures are so good because it talks about exactly what you need and a timeline on how important it is to let to, to respond to that permit holder. And then... Um, Sydney or Audra, if one of you want to tell us a little bit about this permit, this refund that was originally two thousand dollars and then then changed to three thousand, and no no kind of evidence or support there. I think we're all looking at Sydney. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. There was just a, a specific case where there just wasn't documentation of why it was refunded, and that's when having policies and procedures would have been really handy. Because it could have identified, um, it could have identified who was supposed to document the call, and specific steps that could have been taken to help us understand, you know, what we could expect to see, um, and then also in the future, policies and procedures for cases like this would be really helpful because then you could say, okay, this is why it happened. These are specific circumstances when this would be acceptable or applicable. Um, and so it's just little things like that that Finding Five applies to. Yeah, and I think um, it's really important um, to identify who has the authority to, mm -hmm. to make that change, especially yeah. after the fact. Um, yeah. And then uh, the last two findings are, um, so when we first when we do these audits, it's, the findings are kind of in a degree where it starts with the more significant to the least significant risks. So these last two, um, in the interest of time, maybe we'll combine them. Um, it's just untimely out and unreviewed outstanding venue deposit reconciliations and a lack of some of the cancellation forms for easy pay at the Salt Lake City Sports Complex, where both arts and culture and the sports complex have said uh, well, one, arts and culture is going to have theirs remedied by the end of this month at Halloween and Salt Lake City Sports Complex by the end of the year. Um, so as an auditor, why is it helpful to have kind of a timeline of when these findings are going to be implemented and what the action plan is? Why is that, why is that important to have that clearly defined whether somebody agrees or disagrees, a timeline, and how they're going to do it? It helps. Well, it helps us because part of our audit process is doing a follow-up audit and so when we have all these recommendations you want to have guidance and a timeline but it also you want to 
know if management is is going to be implementing and when they plan on implementing these changes. Um, it so it helps us guide our follow-up as well because we'll do a follow-up at six months and one year um, to see if they've been able to implement these recommendations or if they maybe are making changes to their procedures. Maybe they end up realizing they need to reassess all of their procedures and what they have in place. Um, and I'm blanking on the other questions you had, Richard. <laughs> they were really, really profound, but I think you answered it where you talked about, because um, we got to go back in and do a follow-up. So it's to see what they said they would do. Because once again, we're not the experts. So you said you're going to fix it by, X, by doing X, Y, and Z. So that's what we come in and do our follow-up at six months. If they don't do it, we come back after a year. Yeah, I'm going to use another kid with my another example with my kids. Like Saturday morning rolls around, and if there's a mess, and I just say, "Hey, kids, clean it up." If I come back in a couple hours, nothing's going to happen. But if I identify and be like, "Michael, I know this is your mess. You better clean this up, or else," like Michael's going to take it on his uh, uh, take the initiative and get it cleaned up. And it's the same with these audits. Um, uh, I think the big takeaway for the county is that. Uh, they're working on improving their policies and procedures, their documentation, uh, internal controls like reconciliations, and that will help to reduce the instances of fraud, waste, and abuse. Uh, well, and if you've made it this long through the podcast, we thank you. Um, the audit is on our website, and a big thanks to Audra and Sydney for joining us. And Pete. Uh, thank you. And Pete, who uh, helped write the, uh, the audit. Um, we'll pick on him and have him be interviewed at a later date for some random topic. Maybe we'll have him come in yeah. and talk about BYU sports. I don't yeah. know if he's a BYU Vampires. fan or not, but we'll, we'll figure something to, to get him <laughs> to come in. So anyway, thanks for listening, and until next time.